you're here for the white privilege podcast uh and thank you if you are here it's been quite a while since we've recorded uh, we will get to that in a bit uh i'm your co-host very white guy and as always i'm joined by the unruly rev you can find us at interracial john that's j-a-w-n uh and you can also find us on itunes stitcher other places you get your podcast just search for white privilege podcast and you should be able to find it there rev i know it's been forever since we've podcasted and it's also been a little bit since we've had some some good quality time to talk so how are you? Well, I'm glad that uh, that it's finally spring. Uh, the last time we talked, it was winter, and then it just kind of never stopped being winter. It seemed like maybe a day it would turn seventy here, and then it would be thirty. So, I think we're actually I think we're actually into spring. So I'm I'm in a good mood. I'm ready to have this uh, to jump in here today. Have this good conversation. Yeah, you're in the Midwest. We moved. Uh, we're in Charlotte now, and it's much warmer. We like the weather here quite a bit better. Uh, we, I was in visiting a friend in Michigan. They had snow like. Like a week ago. It's like, ridiculous. Like almost I, in May. That's not right. I know. All right. Uh, so we referenced it's been a while, right? Having podcasts in a bit. And uh, I, and on our the, the show I do with my wife, the John, we have a This Week in Apology. So you can rate this apology and, and call it total crap and we don't hit any of the points. That's, that's fine. <laughs> I'm, I'm willing to take the, the, take the hit on the chin. But it, it's been, I think, a couple months. And we, we were doing pretty good. We were trying to do it once a month. Um, admittedly life got in the way, my, my household and family, uh, there's some work sort of things that got in the way. Um, and that's, those are all explanations after the fact. Um, and I, this is, I said, this is what I would I kind of mentioned this as we we're getting on the call here. So this is kind of coming at you from left field rev. Um, but I've, I've talked with you personally and we've kind of danced a little bit on this show a couple of times about, um, just some of the struggles that I have, right? Just me, I'm not talking about you, just me personally. Um, and this is absolutely framed by being a white man. Um, but sometimes I, and again, this is framed by my experience. So a bunch of years ago, I'm on Twitter. I'm getting involved with Twitter. Mike Brown's executed extrajudicially in the street. And I, th- I can look back at that time, you know, with more of a, a more critical lens now. And I can see a lot of what, I was tweeting and doing was just kind of performative. It was maybe like outrage and you know, maybe back then white men talking about racism was slightly more novel. Right? It's not, it's not novel at all. Really. It's just like, okay, you're another Tim wise kind of whatever. And I, that's a horrible comparison. I'm not Tim wise, but white people talking about racism, you get attention, right? Like even the, the, and I don't want to call them out because they're a lovely group, but there was a, uh, like a festival that was like, Hey, we'd love to have the white privilege podcast. Come on. And you guys could be at the festival. And I was honored, but at the same time, I was like, but why? Like, is it just because we're white people talking about racism? That seems kind of like, I don't know, antithetical to the things I'm trying actually to do. So again, this is just all my own internal white nonsense that I'm trying to work out. That's part of what this show is for me is working this out with you, Rev. Mm-hmm. And, and admittedly, that's what it is. I, I hope it's not completely worthless for other folks, but that gets back to the sort of, is the, the podcast, are we doing things that are valuable to other people? Is it just mm-hmm. performance? Is it just, 
um, another group of white people talking about something. And like you and I both intimately know and understand the sort of contextual, hey, white supremacy is a white invention and it's beholden on white people to educate other white people and kind of make this happen. And then, and, and I know other people get that too. And I think sometimes, okay, this is, this podcast is maybe good for that. We're doing some education, but is education for education's sake really worth it? And I know that we white people do that shit all the time. We get into this like ivory tower, like, oh, but we're just learning and we want to learn and it's a teachable moment. And, and even like overtly horrible racist people will do that. As soon as they get caught being super fucking racist, it's like, oh, but I want to learn, teach me, you know? And then we're, you use and you universalists and we love going to general assembly and we love listening to Robin D'Angelo and Chris Crass. And we love listening to the black lives of you collective, but what do we do? Right? Like, you know, like literally I've had people call my wife and say, we want you to come talk to us about black lives matter. Huh? Why? Well, we want to hear about Black Lives Matter stories and things. But what? Like, is that just to make you feel good? So I, I'm admittedly struggling with, is this show making me feel good? Is it doing good? Is it performative? So I'm, I'm wanting to, and I haven't, again, this is terrible to, to do this to you on the show kind of live. I apologize. <laughs> um, but I've wanted to maybe think about changing the format somewhat. Maybe, um, like I know that for me, part of what, you know, so I'm not an expert on white, you know, I'm not an expert on race and racism, black, black women, black trans women, people at multiple intersections live daily, um, with, with the, the weight of, of white supremacy and racism. So they're, they're literally experts on what that is and it feels like. Um, and I've said before that I'm, I'm not an expert on that. And I try to talk about my journey because that's the only thing I'm, I'm really equipped to talk about. How have I gone from, you know, as a white man in this, as a his set, a cis hat, uh, you know, white man of privilege, of means, uh, how do I navigate this earth and how do I navigate it differently to try to be uh, less harmful? And what has that entailed for me as a, as a white person? How have I done that? And that's all I can really share sort of like the journey. And you and I have talked about this before. That's sort of um, what I, I hope that this show could kind of be about. And, and I don't know if, if I've done that. So I don't know if I'm still journeying. I think I've been a little bit stagnant. So I don't know how I could, how we could together make the the podcast. Um, I don't want to say satisfy my concerns about, you know, my stagnation. Um, but I was thinking maybe we could have like uh, a different topic or article or, you know, like even like on the podcast notes. Now we're talking about um, who was it? You had the notes in here for, uh, Oh, we would take it off. Uh, uh, James Cohn, right? So, Doctor oh, James. It's Cohn. on the second page. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, uh, uh, an icon of sort of black liberation thought, right? And and this is some somewhat new to me, maybe in the last like three four years. That, you know, black folk aren't a monolith, and even when it comes to liberation, they're not a monolith there either. There's different sort of schools of thoughts, and I think it might be interesting to kind of delve into different. Um, areas of black liberation, whether it be Afro-pessimism, whether it be, uh, you know, separatist, Dr. Cohn, uh, you know, I'm not sure. I'm just kind of back of an envelope spitballing, but I, I'd like to have more of my, I'd like to do more of my own education and have more of that journey be on this podcast and maybe shared with, with some of the listeners so that in a, in an advance of here's what we're going to be reading and discussing, here's the material. And then here's the podcast and notes. I'm not sure. I'm just, again, I feel bad throwing this at you, Rev, but I, this, this part of the delay, I've honestly been reluctant because um, I just haven't had any notes to put together. I've been struggling with what, what are we, you know, 
what are we doing? And again, I'm, I'm, I'm really apologize for kind of throwing this at you on a, <laughs> on a, on an episode, but is this, is this just me kind of being a white dude? Does this resonate any with you? What are your thoughts, Rev? Well, I mean, p- p- so you have to figure uh, there's parts of this that sure that make a lot of sense. There is something, I mean, we, we are performing and that we're recording something it's out for public consumption. I mean, there is some of this that's always going to be performative. We're concerned about the quality of the volume, right? Is it, is it, can, can you hear it? Is there hmm. background noise, right? So there is something about this that is performative. There's no question about it. It's the nature of the medium, right? Uh, and that's one of those things that, that, yeah, you'll have to struggle with and decide, is it worth even, even doing a podcast because it is out there for public because it's going performative as part of, part of it end of story. Mm, right. Mm, mm. So I think there's some of that that you're going to have to figure out how to metabolize. Uh, and maybe that is part of your own discernment. If you want to keep doing it, if, if just that alone, uh, makes it not part of the way you want to engage dismantling white supremacy, then that that's something worth discerning. Um, in terms of the format, uh, you know, there's definitely things that we can shift and change around it. There's, you know, you've, you've done that before just with this podcast. I'm not the first co-host, right? The format has definitely changed. Uh, and even when you started it, cause you started it really in the throes of, 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 uh, the, the, uh, uprising in Ferguson, right around Mike Brown's murder. So that was really the focus was a really a lot around, uh, policing and, uh, and this, you know, lynching that happened. So that, and that has shifted and we've shifted more into looking at, at the bigger picture around, uh, white privilege and white supremacy and how that, that interacts, uh, internally, individually, and more societally. So there's no reason that this can't shift again. Um, I think we can talk about it, how, and, and what it could shift into, you know, I'd, I'd actually be interested in hearing from people that listen to us to see what it is that they're looking for. Uh, and that might be a direction to go. Uh, I know on the John, you guys have the faithful 14. I don't know that we even have that many. So, uh, <laughs> <Faithful> too. <laughs> yeah, and I, I agree. I, I sort of, I don't know what our audience is asking, looking for. So maybe that's a good, yeah. uh, a starting point, you know, tag unruly rev and, and myself, very white guy. And, you know, I'll, and I'll, I'll acquiesce and say, if there is stuff you like, tell us, you know, if this is proving valuable, let us know if you'd like to see more, um, let us know what would be valuable to you in that regard. And I, I definitely, um, you know, I, I, I own up that a lot of this is my own internal, um, and that's what I, to be really dead ass honest for me, this episode, this show is more frequently about me working through my own white internal nonsense with an accountability partner like you that I really trust and care about more than almost anything else, you know? And I don't even know if people know, but like this kind of discussion we're having usually happens off air. Like we usually have a, we talk a lot, you know, more, more frequently we've been uh, out of communication a little bit just because life and stuff. And, but usually we, we have these kind of, I want to say like, this isn't deep. That makes it sound wrong, but more, um, nuanced. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Just more, of uh, you know, more nuanced discussion about, um, our role within this system and, and what right. we're doing and, and, and how that's, whether that's helping. And, and really a, a lot of that again is just me working through my own internal kind of mess. And, and I really appreciate your comments about the format being performative because that's helped me separate, 
um, a couple of different things. Cause you're right. There, there's just, it's very nature. There's a, a microphone. There's a, you know, like a, I've got audacity running. Like you said, there's, there's pieces of it that are by its very nature going to be performative. And maybe it's, it's not always easy for me to, to differentiate and discern between that, which is performative by its nature, like it must be. And that, which is just performative because it is. And even like, I know, like you referenced the earlier episodes of the podcast, I was just all angry. It was just a angry white guy, like, like screaming into the void. And that, I mean, I guess that, that was valuable to me. Um, I don't think it's very valuable to go back to and listen to. I don't know if it helped a lot of other people, but, um, it was literally just like me punching a wall almost. And, and, and so that's when you and I started doing it, it was like, okay, let's, let's change this. Let's actually have some dialogue and discussion. And now I'm thinking maybe, I don't know, maybe let's change it again. But again, that could just be my personal hang up with um and there's two pieces one of it is sort of a desire to not be performative and then two i'm like my entire world has been my entire life has been based on um doing fixing solving and being rewarded for that you know mm. oh you're a white dude and, and we're going to give you a platform and a, and a space and whether it's business whether it's school um you know just life in general like we were we went to the movies the other day and we had to go back into the theater because we left something and you have to like you give your ticket and the guy's counting the tickets and we both walk up unless he goes you go so i do i just walk right through walk right past the ticket counter walk right in she's five steps behind me and i hear her say oh i'm just going into the theater i got you know like I'm six foot five, 250 pounds. And I very conspicuously walked right in. Right. But she right. couldn't. So, you know, we, we get it. We talk about a lot. So we know um, how the world is going and, and, and where we need to be. But I, I just lost my train of thought, but I, like I said, I really, I, I want to do, I, I have an issue with wanting to solve and fix and do things and I can't solve and fix racism. Right. So there's, there's two parts. There's like one, I don't want to be poor. And two, there's still this like white male, you can do it poll that I have to be aware of and make sure mm -hmm. that I'm not, you know what I mean? Like, so it's really weird for me. Like, it's like, Oh, I want to do more, but then am I just being a white dude? Am I just trying to like fix it and solve it? So it's all kind of, it's just a jumbled fucking white mess. And I, I don't know if, if any of this is even making sense, but that's kind of where my head was at. And that's a, a good portion of why I've been uh, delayed. And, and to the listeners, uh, I should be full, uh, credit to rev um they've asked they've given dates they've set up podcast guides can we record here can we record there they gave me a, a date when they were traveling so i've, I've been it's me it's all on me uh, <laughs> it's entirely my fault and i'm i'm kind of like diarrhea mouthing uh, a bit why but that's kind of where i'm at just struggling a little bit with um uh i guess the the show the role what we're doing mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I, you know what? This is probably part of what the podcast for though, too, is, is, you know, thinking about how we're trying to be transparent about our own process with this. And, and some of that is, you know, it, it may just be weird that we're doing that and putting it out publicly that other people can listen to if they want to. Um, that, cause this is the kind of conversation that you and I have when we're not recording. I know. So maybe it's just weird that we're recording it and putting it out uh, for public consumption. Uh, uh maybe I'll, I'll, I'll give of, us a final edit. Why I think we wanted to do that was to also model that this is the kind of conversations that, that 
we hope that white people are having with other white people and giving this a space for other white people to listen in on and maybe um, give some some jumping off points for their own conversations. Mm. Yeah. And maybe that's another just comment to the to the white people's podcast. If this is something that other folk um, struggle with, there's a and I'm, I'm terrible at, at Twitter handles and names, but there's a a, a, a white male UU uh, minister, and I can't remember where they're located. Um, I think his name is James, and and I've had a lot of really good um, Twitter conversations with. Um, I think he goes with him by him um, with James um, around this kind of topic. Um, just as a as a white male, as a as a UU, um, trying to you know to do and be better, but knowing that um, the world is going to Almost like, so I don't know if this is an appropriate analogy, but you said this platform, a podcast is by its nature performative. I think a white male trying to dismantle racism is almost by its nature performative. I don't know almost how it couldn't be performative to, to a, a, at least some set of people. And so James has had a lot of really good uh, commentary for me. And we've, we've discussed a few things about um, how not to be performative or whether that's even... Uh, fully achievable in some regard because i'm not sure if it if it can be well i don't know if it is fully achievable because uh, because otherwise if if something's not performative it's it's not on the outside that means it's all internal and some of the things that we've talked about and we should continue talking about i think uh, on this podcast and and just internally as well or just between you and i i mean is how our whole goal is not to just make it internal because racism isn't just about feelings, right? It's about actions. It's about systems. It's about things on the outside. So if we're only doing it internally, we're not going to actually be able to dismantle any part of white supremacy, you know, and, and all, I really do believe that all we can do is our corner. There's corners that we have influence over. And so, but, so we need to take action in those corners. Uh, you know, I, I have no, I have no, uh, delusions of grandeur that our podcast or anything that I'm going to do in my lifetime is going to dismantle the whole of white supremacy. Right. Yeah. But there's pieces that, that I really work hard at chipping away on. And, you know, for me as a minister and as an educator too, cause I'm also a, a, a professor there's, and, and I'm as a parent, right. I'm also a parent. Uh, there are, there are corners that I can keep chipping away on and I can keep being that, uh, that irritant and I can keep speaking up and I can keep doing things. And by doing that, there is an element, there is part of that that is performative and that it's external and figuring though it, when I'm going to then be external, when I'm going to be doing something in public, I mean, I've been a protester and I don't know that I'm an activist exactly. I don't know that I, and I'm definitely not an organizer, but I definitely have been a, a, a protester, uh, in, you know, in terms of being out in literally in the streets and, in a number of different arenas. So there's, those are things that if I'm going to be external about it, then how am I also going to be accountable and how am I going to be humble about it? I think that's part of the, I think that's part of the balance of this whole equation that, that, uh, that we have to consider. And maybe we should be talking about more. Mm. Yeah. And you know, you made a good point about sort of the action and maybe that's where I'm again, sort of, just mentally struggling, like, and I, again, I don't want to <laughs> ostracize, like you said, the, the barely a dozen listeners we might have, but I was literally wondering, so if I'm feeling that this is really just sort of making me feel good, are people that are gravitating the show 
the same kind of thing? Are they really just looking to feel good? And if we're making a, a vehicle for white folks to feel good about racism, oh, fuck me, man. I just, that's not what I want to do, right? I right. Wanna... At the same time, there are things that you can't, you know, th- there's the whole, there's, there's the whole, I mean, a Friends, which is very obviously very, the whitest show, like the whitest of whitest shows, right, Friends? But there's a whole episode, I don't know if you ever watched it, where, uh, this idea of doing something that's worthy or doing something that's supportive or doing something that is helpful does make you feel good. You can't separate the two. <laughs> and this is something that's worthy. Yeah, that's fair. I guess you can't, you're, you're right. You can't completely separate the two, but. And do you have to? Hmm. Right. Do you have to? Interesting. If Now, again, it looks at the nuance of, am I doing it so that I can feel good or is feeling good a byproduct of having done something good? Boy, that's really, you, you just kind of like trip my mind. Cause I know I've talked about it on, on this show, if not the, the John, but I wear a, a black lives matter bracelet as a matter of daily. Uh, you know, it's on my wrist every single day. I just, I put it on, put it on very habitual practice, but it wasn't always like that. And in fact, right. when it, in the beginning, it did feel performative. Like I wanted to put it on when like I'd be here or there, or oh, this person would see it or that. And I was like, well, that's terrible. So I wouldn't wear it. I would deliberately not wear it because like, oh, my, the, the impetus and thought to wear it, I could tell was coming from a place of performance. So I just was like, I got to put it on every day, period, regardless. And now it goes the other direction where I, I go places and I'm like, man, I kind of want to turn it inside out. I'm, I'm in a biker bar and I could tell there's like, you know, I'm the only one not wearing camo. <laughs> I think I said the other day to someone, I was like, yeah, I actually went and had a colonoscopy. And while they're wheeling me in, the nurse is like, oh, black lives matter. I think all lives matter. And I'm just like, oh, for fuck's sake. Like they're about to put a camera up my butt and they're like, you know, making a comment about my BLM bracelet. But so it, right. it went kind of the same way where it started with clearly and obviously performative and then it changed and it became kind of a ritual. But now there is a little bit of a like, I can't explain it. Maybe you're, it, it is right that there's a, a blending of doing good and feeling good that can't be, uh, they're inexorably intertwined. And, and that is kind of, we say that about doing this work is, is spiritual and it's faith and it's healing. Um, and it should be its own reward, but it is complicated. It's very complicated. It's, there's nothing. And you know, that's part of the, that that's part of why I think the way that we do this work it to, to really do it, it needs to be as part of a spiritual discipline mm. that's, uh, and spiritual disciplines don't necessarily, the goal of spiritual disciplines isn't to feel good. <laughs> Yeah, necessarily. Right. It's to it's there. There's all sorts of different reasons for doing them, depending on what you're doing. But feeling good isn't necessarily one of them doing good or doing better. Absolutely uh, is. And so I, I do think we have to look at what our motivations are. Am I doing this so that I can feel good about myself and I can get those cookies and I can pat myself on the back? Or am I doing it because it's the right thing to do? And yes, those things may come. But then it becomes another question of, so what are you going to, that becomes another, um, another time to reflect and say, well, what am I going to do with, uh, this platform that I have or the notoriety I've, I've received or the pat that I got on the back? You know, how, how is this going to, how can I kind of reinvest that experience into the work more? I mean, there's ways to look at it to become more, um, more invested in 
in the work rather than what I get out of the work. You know yeah, what I mean? Yeah. And you, you've mentioned faith and we, we talk about it a lot on the show. We're both Unitarian Universalists. And uh, this last week, uh, the, the Black Lives of You Organizing Collective had a revival. Um, and I, I, I've heard on Twitter a couple of different times that there might be one or two black folk that, that listen to this show. Um, you're welcome. And we love having you here. Um, and want to just let you know that the uh, and I'll put it up on the podcast notes, but the Black Lives of UU um, Facebook page has a lot of uh, content from this last weekend, um, oh, yeah. streams from sort of their services. And if you join, um, if you are black, uh, identify as black and join the, the collective, you can see some uh, streams that were uh, private for like affinity black folks. But so I don't know if you had a chance, uh, Rev, and, I, and again, this isn't even on the notes. I'm going to pop it on you because we're talking about faith. I think this is a good segue. Uh, so uh, Sekou, uh, who's a, a reverend, uh, I think you know him uh, from St. Louis, and he's done a lot with uh, UU Faith and with the Black Lives uh, UU Collective. And they had uh, Rev Sekou there last week to do a couple different things. One was a, a service for the black folk, and then he did a service for um, white folk. And this is a section where he's literally talking about sort of this um, commitment and specifically about um, kind of who's in our, our Oval Office now. And so, but um, I'm just going to play it for just a second. And it's not about um, the president, but it's about um, what we're doing in these times and just as, a, as an empire, which Sekou mm-hmm. uh, effectively describes the United States. But I think it's really good. So I'm just going to play this for a second. It is the vanguard of American religion. That through your rich tradition, I'm beginning particularly with... Oh, you know what? I'm going to pause it. I forgot. You can't hear that, can you, Rev? Yeah, I can, actually. Oh, you can't hear that. Oh, man. I can. All right, I'm going to go back. All right, here you go. All right. It's about four minutes. Emerson's 1836 speech at Harvard that almost caused a riot about the possibilities of what religion could be and what it should be as it relates to lifting up and honoring the humanity of all. And that one of the challenges of living in the particular moment in which we live in, particularly when we have a monster in the White House, there is something easy about placing all of our foibles for him to become a totem Mm -hmm. for the sins of the nation. If he wasn't in office, things would not be the way that they are. He is the problem. He is on. He is the reason. And given the fact that he is so uncouth and so uncivilized in the performance of the office of the president, he becomes an easy target, particularly for those of us who are as sophisticated as Unitarians are. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Who've read all the right books. They've been to the right schools. Not the Unitarians here, but at the other church. <laughs> that they perhaps have adopted, adopted multiracial children, that they, they live in a community and that they don't quote unquote see race. They are colorblind. Those other Unitarians. <laughs> 
But one of the challenges in a moment is this. My grandmother would say it like this. She would say, you can't live in a whorehouse and not turn a trick. That, that part of living in an immoral system, you know, Occupy Wall Street is just white folks realizing what black folks have been saying for 400 years. The system's working just fine, just for a few. But when you live in an immoral system, that you have the capacity to reproduce that immorality yourself. And that part of what happens in a system that is so, that the, the, the hegemony, that fancy word for the spirit of a thing, that the spirit, the zeitgeist of the particular historical moment that we're in is so prevalent, it is so unknown, it is, it is part of the givenness of the world in which we live that we begin to reproduce the very empire that we say we are struggling against. <laughs> And so in this text, this familiar story on the book of Moses and this beautiful story that has been told time in and time out, that there's a moment at the end of the passage of the, of the scripture that you have heard that it says Moses has been going up to the mountain and he's meeting with God to get some rules. And while he's away, they go and they make a golden calf. They take off their ornaments and they begin to make a golden calf to worship it and say, this is the God that has brought us out of Egypt. And so part of what they're doing is responding to what they know. Because they've been in Egypt so long. And they begin to, they come through the trials and the tribulations. They've made the great exodus. And now that they're in the wilderness and there's a, something unsure for them, their footing is unsure, they go back to what they know. And so they begin to worship the gods of the empire. Because that God gave them comfort. It was familiar. It was in them. They build this golden calf off of their own ornaments. It's part of who they are. It's how they orientate themselves. It's the constitution to their being. And so they had left Egypt, but Egypt had not left them. Right. Now, early on in the story, beginning with the narrative, the, the edict that comes down from Pharaoh that says, kill the male children because they're worried that a Messiah might come. There's about what is part of us understanding first and acknowledging that we are in the empire, then we have to come to terms with our positionality in the empire. And so the midwives, who had the ear of the powers, they were like social workers and teachers in black communities. They had the end of the empire. They had a level of respect. And so when the edict came down and said that killed them, and it says the Bible says that they, but because they feared God, they feared something bigger than themselves and older than themselves, that they believed in justice. They just lied to the empire. So 
I don't know what to do about these Israeli women. They just come on out and I, we just can't do it. And trying to do what you said, but we just can't fill it. That's some of your roles and responsibilities. Some people in this room got access. You have access. There are, you, you, there are phone calls you make. There are people you have dinner with. There are clubs that you're in with folks who can make decisions about the lives of young people. Well, that even when you're in those situations, you just simply say, I am not going to do it. I reject a discourse that says they were simply doing their jobs. Because there's something bigger. And so some of you all are positioned to be able to make decisions about the quality of people's lives. And the question is that will you fear God or will you serve the empire? And then there's another instance when it goes on into the... I'm going to pause it there because I'll, I'll put the whole post, but my God, Sekou can, can preach a word. And I, I feel like that last statement for me even sums up a little bit what we're talking about. Mm-hmm. There are people listening to this. I, you, we have access. We have, a, a, you and I have already acknowledged we're in this empire. I think I understand my position in it, but are we turning tricks? Are we building golden calves? Are we fearing God or are we serving the empire? So that's where I'm struggling a little bit, you know, but I, I thought that this was a tremendous sermon. Uh, this was for the white folk. Uh, so we'll put this up. Uh, it's on the Black Lives U Facebook page, but um, do check it out. And I thought that was sort of a, you know, I'll, I'll stop talking about our internal mess, but I thought for me, that was kind of a, uh, an analogous sort of uh, to me, the struggles I'm having, you know? Well, it, I, I, listen, I'm, I'm with you on all of this. This is this is a daily struggle, and it's the things that we need to pay attention to. It's the things that we need to pay attention to. So I think I'm glad that you brought it here. I'm glad that we're uh, talking about it here. It makes makes sense to me. Um, it, n- none of this is easy. It's all it's all complicated. It's all complicated because um, yeah, it's complex, which gets into, I'm, I'm going to move, I, I'm just going to move some of this up since we just uh, heard that and talk about, uh, so yeah, I, I know Sekou, I don't know just Sekou just from St. Louis, though we were at seminary together. Oh, I, and, I forgot about that. Yeah, so we were at seminary together, so Sekou and I go back a long time, over a decade now, uh, and and one of the teachers we have in common is is James Cohn, who just died uh, in the last few days. And, uh, what, what James Cone brought, uh, that the, the underpinnings, he is the father of, of black liberation theology. Uh, the, he is the, the individual that, that created that, that construct. And it's certainly been, uh, been worked on and been crit- critiqued and been expanded and been revised and he's done revisions and connections on it. But, uh, James Cone, uh, is just people have talked about him. I mean, he was a prophet. He was a preacher. He, there is no one like him. There was no one like him. And it was, uh, it's a resounding absence to have him not walking amongst us any longer. Um, and so with that, uh, I, we, we're going to put some, some posts to some places that you can, uh, you can connect to learn. If you don't know about James Cone, I highly recommend you pick up some of his books. Definitely. If do nothing else, if you do nothing else, uh, go on YouTube and, uh, and look for, uh, some of his uh, speeches and his lectures. 
there are quite quite a good number of them in interviews. He was on on Bill. Um, oh, what's his name? Uh, I'm forgetting his name all of a sudden. Uh, I'll think of it in a minute. Uh, he was on uh, interviewed regularly. Watch his interviews. If you if you're not familiar with his books, um, his big probably first breakthrough book was Black Theology and Black Power back in about 1968-69 uh and then moved into a black a black theology of liberation um which is another just incredible i i have i I could go through i have my couple of my books on my on my desk here right now and they're just all underlined and you know dog-eared uh we don't have time in the show for me to go deeply into into it but um it's really powerful and uh, particularly for this time right now uh, I think regardless, um, regardless of your faith tradition, there's powerful work in here. James Cone is, is most definitely a Christian and he's a Christian theologian. And, uh, so that is the language and the, the frame that he is working in and the symbols that he's talking though, I believe go beyond, uh, specifically just, uh, they don't have to be kept just within a Christian context. Uh, the cross and the lynching tree is one of his, uh, more contemporary books. It's within the last, I think within the last 10 years, this book came out and, uh, yeah, 2011 Mm. there was particularly with what's happening since Mike Brown. I mean, I read the cross and the lynching tree, reread it just in the last year and the parallels, uh, in, looking not just at the lynching tree of the past, but what is what is the current modern lynchings of black people in the streets, particularly by uh, by law enforcement, it's it's earth shattering, right? Mm. So I highly recommend that book. And again, it's not while he is looking at the cross, which is absolutely a Christian uh, symbol and uh, and I do think that looking at the bigger symbols because of empire and the United States and a bigger place and where we are, uh, where we are in relationship to Christianity, whether we're, while I absolutely reject that we are a Christian nation, Christianity uh, and the Bible, even just as a, not necessarily as a sacred text, but as a literature, uh, definitely influences the way that, that this country, uh, exists, mm-hmm. right? Just as literature, it does, um, you know, to be, to notice how things are talked about, you know, having, having some just Bible literacy is important because otherwise you miss stuff that's happening. So I could not recommend these books more highly. I, I have said before, and this goes into a little bit of the inside baseball. Um, I, I mean, I haven't said it on this show, but I've said it to individuals that I believe that, uh, that the black liberation theology that James Cone puts forth, uh, could, will be, if we're, if the Unitarian Universalist is going to be saved, it is through, uh, the, I, the black liberation theology, particularly his call in black liberation theology for whites. And he has a call for white people. And that is for us to give up our whiteness Mm. in, and it's nuanced, but he, he is a, that is our way. That is our way to salvation is to give up our whiteness, to renounce our whiteness and all the pieces of it. And while technically, obviously he's talking about it in a bigger sense, because we can't give up the actual color of our skin. 
that can't change. He's not asking us to be Rachel Dolezal, right? He's not asking us to pretend to be something we're not. He's asking us to give up and renounce these other pieces of privilege of supremacy in all the ways that it exists, in the structures that we live in, in the ways that we, you know, imbibe media, in the ways that we raise our kids, in the ways that we experience education, in the ways that we worship, all of those ways uh, to, to give up whiteness. And I think that that is a powerful call for those of us who are white. I think it is one that is daunting. I think that it is not one that we will ever completely accomplish. But if we work towards that, I think that's that's the the call that I think is important. And it's not just about black people, right? Then it's giving up our whiteness for the sake of all others. It's not just black people who uh, experience racism, right? And so it's a bigger call for us. Uh, as white people to step up and, and that, I mean, that, and maybe that's something that we can do in this show as you're looking at the different formats, right? Maybe we can, can pick either some pieces of cone or something else and think about, you know, how, how do we give up this whiteness? And that mm-hmm. is part of dismantling this white supremacy. Well, and Sekou's uh, sermon, he mentioned, you know, you got to acknowledge that it exists and that you're in it, and then you got to understand your position in it. Um, yeah. and, and we talk about that a lot. And I think we even talked about, even on this show, about how can you get white folk? Like, you know, there's the average, I think people that listen to this show perhaps get it a little bit more than the average person. I assume people aren't going to just gravitate to white brothers podcast if they're not like trying to be better and understand a little bit. But frequently I have conversations with, I'm just trying to like convince people that, that white supremacy is real, you know? Right. And like, as a starting point, that's impo- not impossible, but good God, if I have to convince you that, you know, the empire is real, much less your position in upholding it. Um, that's a lot of work. That, that's a much different starting point. Um, so I kind of feel like, and that's me again, part of my, you know, what's the purpose? What are we doing? Um, you know, there's lots of people speaking to and talking about, um, call it sort of like the newly aware, you know, like there's just, there's a lot of material. I, in my opinion, if you're at this point in our year of Beyonce 2018, still wondering if white privilege is a thing, you're, you're part of the problem to the point that you're no longer needed for the solution, right? Like you just, there's enough people that get it that I don't think we need to convince people that white privilege is real. We need to work with the people that know white privilege is real and get them to be more effective and actually start taking action and dismantling. And maybe I'm wrong in that regard, but I think there's a lot, like, again, I'm of the opinion this podcast, Rev and I are not needed to get you to the point to accept that, that white privilege is real. There's a lot of fucking groundwork there. A lot. Yeah. We're, we're, we're making, we're, our conversations are on the assumption that you're already there with us, that we're, that we're there, that that, that's where we're starting. We're not doing that one Uh, and, and I agree that there's a certain amount of energy that, that I, I personally, I have a limited amount of energy time, right? I'm only going to be on this earth for a certain amount of time. And the amount of time of where I'm going to spend my time is not in that 101 trying to convince somebody that that white privilege exists, that white supremacy exists, that that other people that is their mission and that's their goal and that's their job and I'm glad that they're doing it. I really am. I think you and I have talked about like there's some folks that are that are really uh, some people that have come out of the white power movement who have who spend their mission and their on life now they're. Uh, their work, their life's work is to go back and try to bring other people out of those uh, white power movements. Mm, hate group, right? like exit and stuff. hate groups. Yeah. 
Exactly. And we've talked about, is that even something worth doing? And for <laughs> me, it's not something for worth it for me to do. I would be ineffective in it, right? I'm not, I, I wouldn't be able to do it well. Uh, so, and it's not something that I, that I gravitate towards. It's not, it's not where my passion is, right? So where's my corner? For some people, I wouldn't say it's not worth doing because I think it's something that's worth doing. It's just not going to be where I'm going to be. And I think that's also where we need to go with whatever limited resources, time, uh, energy that we have, do what we can and then fight to and and push to do more because we always can do more than we think we can do. Yeah. And, and not just do more, but be more effective is what I'm, I'm feeling. Sure. You know, because sure. there is a limit. Yeah. And we, we I know you personally and I know the things that you do. And I know things you've been doing outside of the last time we recorded. And it's not all work. <laughs> you know, you do. You know, you say you're not an activist, you're not an organizer, um, but you do. You I know what you do and you do justice related work morning noon and night so uh yeah well anyway uh and i'm sorry on your uh, loss of, of dr james cohen I, I i understand uh you had a, a connection and it's a, it's a great loss for theological uh and liberation movements uh combined um but just personally i'm sorry for your loss as well thank you yeah he was to to be able to it's one thing it, it's why I think it's great. And I encourage people to read his books, no question. But I also really encourage you to go and, and listen to him and the way he spoke. Uh, to have been a, a student in his class, uh, in, in classes was just, there's nothing like it. There's nothing like it to hear him. Uh, I just, I can't recommend that more, you know, more than to read it. Yes. And, and hear him. Uh, he was powerful. And he also recognized you know, bigger pieces that, that, that black liberation theology is where it started and it's where it started for him. And from that, it, he also, uh, he didn't leave it there. He also brought in, uh, the liberation of, of oppressed groups, um, of, uh, of oppressed groups. Uh, he spoke eloquently and consistently, uh, that, that it was around the oppressed and that became, that became and was bigger than, than just black people. Um, and so it was powerful. He also became, as, as he got older, also really looked at, uh, at the earth. And like, if you're going to be you know, people you want to save, the, if we don't, if we just start taking care of the earth too, there's nothing left for us. <laughs> this is the planet that we've been given. And if we don't take care of that, and if we're not looking at how, um, how climate change and how uh, how racism and empire are absolutely affecting the very planet that we live on and in, uh, and how they're directly impacting and what they have to do with that, and just in a much more holistic view, that this stuff is all connected. This stuff is all connected, and that white supremacy is part of why the planet is in the shape that it's in so it's just really powerful mm. yeah we're the i'm going tangential but the there's been a couple of mass shootings many too many too many mass uh shootings and, and tragedies since we recorded um but there was the one in toronto where the the guy stole a van and plowed into people and it turns out he was like a men's rights activist mm. right and I think the takeaway for me was, and it was just outrageous, right? There were so many things they did that was outrageously incorrect. And same with the, there was another, I think it was the, the Waffle House uh, shooter had like 
12 or 11 different incidents with the police. The Secret Service removed the, the right for this individual to have guns in Illinois and guns were given back to them. They broke into a, a pool, swam around half naked and presses uh, charges weren't pressed walked off of a bmw lot with the bmw like stole it took the key fob but since they didn't have a, an id they didn't press any charges they found the bmw in his apartment right they could have just sat at the apartment complex and arrested this kid but they didn't 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 didn't, didn't. and now people have died and it's sort of like the acquiescence and the normalization of literally toxic male white supremacy is killing everybody it yeah. is it is it is dangerous to everyone white people are at risk when we as a society allow these kind of behaviors to go unchecked because of white supremacy we all are at risk it puts us all at risk and and like you said the earth as well and it's you know i'm not as uh skilled at at sort of detailing the inter intermingling of white supremacy and capitalism but they are definitely like you know two sides of the same kind of pillar and that that's uh, a lot of what drives the damaging to the earth is like oh well you know we're just gonna it's ours to take we're gonna plunder it and you know my supremacist views not necessarily white but my dominion my domination over everything and anything allows me to do whatever i want in the name of making money you know uh so we've we've got maybe another it's been about 50 minutes and i've got about 10 15 more minutes uh before i've got to get a cutoff for for my work i think you've got a cutoff as well rev um we've ambled i think this is <laughs> i was like I, I hate doing a show that's going to be all like performed of not really valuable and here's a, a an hour-long show of me working through my own nonsense with my accountability partner which is probably totally useless to everybody so like a secondary apology um but we wanted to talk a little bit more broadly about just kind of like casual racism you know like and i put in i.e white liberals um sometimes white feminism kind of comes in the same sort of general umbrella um what, what clearly it's not just white liberals right so because we're i'm gonna we're gonna get to clearly uh folks that are not liberal progressive or feminists absolutely uh you know embody casual racism on a regular basis as well oh, oh yeah i for me I, I i say white liberals and because i think some of the other groups you mentioned they like to pretend it's casual but they they really know it's racist as fuck <laughs> whereas yeah. like white liberals think that it's not racist but it it totally is but yeah. nevertheless um you want to maybe pick one of these bullets and, and talk about a few of these incidents and stuff which one to start with uh let's let's uh let's jump down to the white women's complicity because i want to talk about this book okay uh, so, I mean, I don't know if we want to talk about the, you know, the, was the wear your voice handmaid's tale? Which sure. one? We start, sure. which, which article are you talking about? I'm, yeah, I'm lost let, on our notes. Why don't you, yeah. Why don't you talk about the, the handmaid's tale? Yeah. Uh, so, uh, Sharonda J. Brown is terrific. Uh, brilliant. She writes a lot about, um, white feminism in particular. We referenced an article she had, uh, maybe four or five months ago called white women in robes. And it was making a, a parallel between, uh, white women during the suffrage movement and, and sort of, you know, uh, very anti-black views that, that white suffragettes had, you know, statements like I will fight for the death for the vote for white women before any black man. Um, so there's, there's a, there's a history. And then the handmaid's tale has sort of galvanized, um, to some degree, white feminists. Um, and Sharonda talked in her previous article about that. And then she does some more um, in this article. And I'll just sort of read this one paragraph that sums up quite nicely. Um, and this again is Sharonda J. Brown. Brilliant. Um, and she's now, um, I think she's with Wear Your Voice Mag uh, on a more uh, 
permanent basis, but she's a writer, does a lot of stuff. Um, but this is in Wear Your Voice, and it's uh, her latest, um, and this is a, a quote from it. White feminists identify so strongly with The Handmaid's Tale because it is a show about white women in slavery. They see clear connections between its horrors and the current state of U.S. politics. They see it as an omen, as a call to action. Therefore, they cosplay in order to protest government involvement in a reproductive rights and women's bodies. Within the dominant pro-choice rhetoric of The Handmaid's Protest and Beyond, the language of keeping the government out of women's bodies is not only cis-normative, but also fails to acknowledge the fact that this same government has already been routinely intruding upon and committing reproductive violence against people of color, the poor, and disabled for centuries, and has even done so in the very same vein of The Handmaid's Tale. Uh, eugenics, white supremacist ideology, reproductive rights, and white feminism are all historically and intricately connected. When the KKK founded a chapter for women, it grew quickly and boasted nearly half a million members at its peak in the early 1900s. Women joined the white supremacist group in droves. Um, so as I was saying, the, the suffragette movement and, and white supremacy kind of um, were hand in hand. But I think we're seeing a lot of this um, white women in particular feeling um, a different kind of pressure given this administration and then channeling that in a way that is not inclusive and is not acknowledging of, um, like Sharonda said, that, that these atrocities have been committed against people of color for for centuries now. Yeah, yeah. This is this is something to to. Uh, it's a great article, actually. Well, let's let's link not just that article, but the earlier the earlier article as well. I know we talked about it before, but let's repost it. Yeah, uh, definitely. As part of the notes too. And th this brings up, there's a book that I just, it just came in the mail the other day and I'm looking forward to it. Uh, I'm going to try to read it this weekend uh, or by, yeah, maybe not this weekend, maybe next, but be, I'm going to start it this weekend. It's called, uh, it's by a white woman, Elizabeth uh, Gillespie McRae. And we'll put, do a link to this as well. It's called Mothers of Massive Resistance, White Women and the Politics of White Supremacy. And I'm going to read from the inside cover of the book. Like I said, I haven't read it yet, but I'm. But just based on the, the description, I'm really looking forward to, to reading about it. And it's uh, – so this is from the inside uh, dust cover here. Why do white supremacist politics in America remain so powerful? Elizabeth uh, Gillespie McRae argues that the answer lies with white women. Examining racial segregation from the 1920s to the 70s, Mothers of Massive Resistance explores the grassroots workers who maintained the system of racial segregation in Jim Crow. Hmm. For decades in rural communities, in university towns, and in New South cities, white women performed myriad duties that upheld white over black, censoring textbooks, denying marriage certificates, deciding on the racial identity of their neighbors, celebrating school choice, canvassing communities for votes, and lobbying elected officials. They instilled beliefs in racial hierarchies in their children, built national networks, and experimented with a colorblind political discourse. Without these mundane everyday acts, white supremacist politics could not have shaped local, regional, and national politics the way it did or lasted as long as it has. What was that book so, title again? It's called Mothers of Massive Resistance. Okay. And I am looking forward to reading this. I think it's going to be, uh, I think it's going to be powerful in in going more deeply into exactly, you know, what what you were just talking about. Where where is this invisible piece? Um, that, that, that where where have have white women? Sometimes uh, white women have consciously upheld white supremacy, and this book I think is looking at some of those conscious places. And yet, because we were you know, this culture, this is the culture that we're in, right, then becomes the subconscious, unconscious places now that 
a lot of white feminists that are not practicing feminism intersectionally are not even recognizing because it's been the water that they've been swimming in, right? The air that they've been breathing, that they're not even recognizing that they're continuing to uphold it in ways that, that, um, that would go against, I think what would be their espoused beliefs. Um, I, I just was teaching this in a, in a class in seminary. So forgive me for those of you that don't use this kind of language, but we just, we've been talking about our espoused theology, the things that we talk about, the things that, and our, so we can talk about our espoused beliefs, beliefs different that differ often from our lived theology and our lived beliefs. Say that again. <laughs> and so our espoused beliefs, the things that we say that we're a part of, how did, how is that in contrast to what we live and how we live? And, uh, so I think that the juxtaposition of, of these articles, um, and, and this book, maybe that's something we can talk about, you know, next episode or yeah. we can look at it. Uh, maybe huge... we'll hear from a couple of our, our listeners and see if they're interested in, in talking more about that. But I'm, I'm excited. I wanted to lift this up because I think it'll be a powerful a powerful resource and a powerful perspective um, to yeah. read for myself. And I want to encourage other people. And let's let's see. Maybe maybe we'll get a conversation around it. We, again, we talk about youism a lot, but that's my biggest issue is the sort of the – we all espouse. We all actually more than espouse. We uphold, affirm, and we in some faith communities – like I don't call it a pledge, but like an oath, right? To, to to uphold the seven principles of universalism. The first one is the inherent dignity and worth of all people. And so we've all as a group you use decided collectively that this is what we're going to, this is our theology. This is our, we're going to, we're going to believe this. That's number one. But man, do we act in disconcert with that belief? So, I mean, literally like two general assemblies ago, we voted, I can't remember what it was, but we have all these votes at general assembly that are just like, holy cow, I can't believe this failed. Like we're not voting to, to, to divest from these eight companies that are profiting on, uh, the, uh, the oppression of Palestinians. We're, we're not going to divest from those companies. That's it. Just monetarily, we're not going to invest in these 10 companies that are, that are profiting uh, off of, of oppression of, of Palestinian folks. We couldn't even decide to do that. Right. So yeah. it's like, how are we saying that we believe this one principle altogether? And so I, when I argue with, with former, <laughs> I'm no longer a part of my brick and mortar church, but I've got people that, that say, I'm a UU. I am a UU. And then in the very next breath are the most ridiculous, you know, uh, conspiracy spouting, you know, horrible right wing folks. Right. But, but they think they can hold both those things at the same time. And we've talked again at like, how are we as a faith going to make that un, you know, that seems untenable and how is it going to be as a faith so that people that don't act in accordance with that first principle feel uncomfortable enough to leave maybe uh, or self-select out. But yeah, that's the, you're right. Espoused uh, versus lived uh, theology is very different across the board, not just for, yeah. for followers of Jesus. Yeah, no, yeah, that's absolutely true. And it's, and it's complicated. You know, I, I think that our principles are aspirational. I don't think that we achieve them perfectly mm. and they're aspirational and we work towards them uh, and we work towards them together. That's another part of it is it, you know, those are, those are, we, we covenant as a, as a group to uphold those. We, we don't individually get them right all the time always, but that, that's, that's what we're working towards. And, and that's what we're fighting for, I think. 
Um, so I think the eighth principle, well, now we're getting really deep in it. If I start talking about eighth principle, we'll go way down the rabbit hole. But at any rate, <laughs> those are the, yeah. some of the things to keep us accountable to, to, to try to bring it a little closer that, that our aspirational theology and our, our espoused theology connected more closely with our lived theology. Yeah. And um, I guess aspirational so, is the right word. I think of it as a guiding principle and, and you're not always in alignment with it, but it's like a good mission statement. It, it brings you back home. And when I'm in doubt and I have questions, uh, and I've had to struggle with it, you know, like I, I did some, uh, work with folks reentering, uh, from, from the carceral system back to society. And I was telling people, Hey, I'm going to go down. I'm doing some work and, and like friends, like my mom was like, Oh, I think that's great, but not those pedophiles, you know, don't, don't, right. don't, not the pedophiles. And I'm not saying, you know, pedophiles or this or that, but I had to find where's the, where's the inherent dignity worth for, for individuals that that have committed this crime. It doesn't mean that they need to be reintegrated into society and given all the full benefits, but they still have inherent dignity and worth. And I had to struggle with that. Well, that's the piece that I think gets, gets, uh, complicated, right? That, that, the that all the, what our principle states is we uphold the inherent worth and dignity of all people. It doesn't say that we uphold the inherent worth and dignity of all behaviors or of all beliefs. Right. And so even the people who are abhorrent, these people that say awful things that are terribly racist, that are incredibly homophobic, that are transphobic, that are misogynistic, our, our, Theology says that they as human beings have inherent worth and dignity. It doesn't say that their beliefs or behaviors do, but it says that they as a human being, that they do have inherent worth and dignity, that those pedophiles do have inherent worth and dignity. It doesn't mean that they're not held accountable. It doesn't mean that that behaviors are all held in the same you know, esteem. It just means that as a human being that you have inherent worth and dignity. And that's, that's some of the things that get, get complicated about it because it's you know, it's like what we were talking about earlier. This is not simple. This is nuanced. Yeah. If it wasn't, if it was easier than this, much better people than us would have solved a lot more than, right? than pre two four. Right. Um, yeah. And that's, again, that's just sort of my, and again, I think that's, I love you as a sounding board because I know that a lot of what my frame comes from is, is, is my maleness is my white maleness. You know, I've, I've and especially my age, you know, I'm like 40 something. Like I've just been ingrained in me that, that, you know, you, you can do it. You have to do it, you know, be the, uh, you know, support of the family, do this, do that, solve, 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 fix, 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 fix. So it, it's a, it's a modality that I, it, I, you know, I always struggle with it because that's just kind of like my conditioning. So I really appreciate your, um, you know, your sounding board and being, being my accountability partner. I, I, I don't know if this episode has been a hill of shit for nobody, but it's, it's been really good for me. <laughs> and I know I needed that. And, and I, I can't. Um, so if this was performative, um, this was for me and I appreciate it. And I appreciate everyone listening and hopefully it hasn't bored anybody to tears. Um, but I've, I've, I've had a, it's been a couple, it's been a hard month or two personally and, and work and I've struggled with some things. So, uh, and I was struggling with even, even this podcast, to be completely honest, Rev was like date after date after date. And I kept putting it off, putting it off. And finally was, I, I felt so bad. And, and Rev, I know you've got travel. I said, let's just, this is the time. Let's just do it. And I didn't have anything prepared. I didn't know what to do. And I've totally derailed the entire podcast guide and, and turned it into a, 
uh, kind of like a referendum on how I'm feeling. And I, I, I want to apologize to you about that, Rev. That was perhaps um, unfair. I know we talked a little bit about that before the recording, but um, this was very, very valuable for me. So I appreciate you and your time. And hopefully it wasn't a waste for, for you or anyone listening. No, not at all. I think this is a kind of conversation that we need to engage in. And, you know, we've got it. We've got some things that we didn't get to. So guess what? We got to jump on our next uh, on our next episode notes. So that's great. So we're already we're already ready for uh, for the next one. And and my commitment is that we do this more regularly. I I, listen. This last couple of months have been tough for me, too. We've I was out of town like there was two months, almost two, two full months where I uh over the course of, of about six, eight weeks, I think I was home seven, nine days. Yeah, you've been so lot. it was real. It's been, it's been very difficult for me, but, but hopefully that's uh, going to be, that, that has slowed down that ha- not hopefully it already has slowed down in the last week. So uh, my commitment is to keep doing this. And hopefully, like you said, maybe, maybe we'll hear from some folks and maybe we'll take this a little different direction and make it even more useful uh, and we'll keep struggling with this. And uh, even though it may be, you know, who knows? We're leaving our asses out in the wind to to see if stuff is uh, – it's a vulnerable place. And, yeah. Uh, I, I like struggling we'll publicly. We'll learn about it. I don't know if, it, if, that's, if that resonates with you. But to me, I feel very authentic struggling publicly because otherwise it seems – disingenuous it seems like like and people do that like they there's this sort of like well i'm woke now and i'm just gonna be woke not like i struggled and said some homophobic shit and i had different issues i had to work through you know what i mean like so i like the the journey being kind of public in that regard and and sort of my takeaway is that you know nothing worthy nothing worthy of achievement is going to come easy um nothing worthy uh comes out fully formed right um, so we're going to keep working and, and maybe the struggles are legitimate and, and are going to help improve things, but we'll keep, uh, keep coming back and we'll keep being here and keep working through our, our mess. And hopefully, uh, that helps folks. And, and like Red said, if you've got ideas, suggestions, there's things you'd like, uh, the, the show to go in my thinking right now is I'd like there to be a little bit more actionable items in order for there to be actionable items. I think there has to be a little bit more of a shared format this is what we're going to be reading and then this is what we'll be discussing but i could be wrong you know that that might just be going on a traditional educational basis so if folks have ideas suggestions thoughts please hit us up on twitter um and then rev we can keep talking and let's let's just make sure we keep recording that sounds good to me all right. Uh, there was one other so we've got do 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 we, we did, can ju- uh, we can jump right into we can jump we can close it out you want to do give me so we'll we'll Save it for next time, but I didn't even read the argument. A hundred ways for white people can make life less frustrating for people of color. Uh, you want to just pick like five of them and read them? Sure. And we'll, we'll, uh, let's see. It's it. a, this, so this is on, uh, this is called, it looks like broadly. That's uh, a section of vice. Okay. So, uh, it's a great, it's just a great long list of things, right? It's not comprehensive as they say, uh, not comprehensive, but it's somewhere to start. Go forth and disrupt harmful racial paradigm. So uh, just because you see you can't see racism around you doesn't mean it's not happening. Trust people of color's assessment of a situation. So I'm going to skip to number 14. This is I, this is this like resonates with me. When you endlessly complain about how terrible white people are, you are being that terrible white person. <laughs> and I, I was like, man, I just, I don't want this podcast to be just like 
nothing but but anger and and you know vitriol anyway keep going yep uh well number 15 don't say shit like i know what it's like to be a person of color i'm a ginger or a queer or uh i mean you name it or a woman right like it's it's different and these things are different and oppressions are different they're connected but they're also different so just x that one take that one right out of your vocabulary yeah this is a good one uh and i i've had to i was learn this but um with my wife being a, an organizer uh certainly things impact her differently than me understand some days are even more mentally exhausting for people of color thanks to the news cycle try not to badger us for opinions on the latest atrocity that's occurred leave us to grieve uh, but when we do have something um listen i know people that are in office environments i'm, I'm very fortunate to work from my home um but i know uh black folk that are like after a tragedy i just don't want to go to the office on monday i'm going to walk into the office monday and i'm going to be the the sole representative of all blackness regarding this thing that happened and they're often put on to try to like you know well the cops you know he looked like a gun and this or that so don't don't badger your your people of color and black coworkers on monday when and you know related I, i made a comment to my wife i said i know Black women don't like their hair being commented about and they have different styles, whether it's be protective styles, cabs, weeds, whatever it is. Um, and it changes. So people, white people are always like, oh, look at your hair. My mom does this to my wife. Oh, I love your hair. It's this. That. And they just don't want to be not- identified every time their hair changes. And uh, I didn't know this, but my wife said that there's uh, new hair uh, on Monday. And black people are like, I don't want to go to work with new hair Monday. Cause it's just, mm. it's everyone's like, Oh, how'd you do it? And what did you, and probably touching it and shit. So black women's hairstyles, they do change sometimes frequently, sometimes drastically overnight. You don't got to comment. There you go. <laughs> uh, here's one that I think about. And we do this in our house. If you have kids, buy them dolls of color and books with characters of color. Nice. Yep. That's something that we've been doing for a while. And it's, uh, you know, I don't know what it's going to ultimately do, but it's important. And we're going to keep, we're going to keep working on it. Yeah, and he's that there actually has here. Don't ask black one if that's their real hair and don't judge black one for wearing wigs, weaves, or having relaxers. Uh, and then don't touch their fucking hair. So <laughs> that's in here. Yep. Remember, oh, here's two in a, in a row here. Remember that not all people of color are straight. And remember that people of color are not inherently more homophobic than white people. Mm. That's something for my community. Yeah, and there's a whole group in here about fetishizing blackness. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I don't want to say I see that a bit, but um, right when we first started doing our podcast and we're on Twitter, um, something about, I guess, interracial, <laughs> the interracial John, um, we got a bunch of people that were, and I, I'm not trying to disparage it, but so I, I've been married for 17 years. This is lingo that was new to me, but so um, dating interracially is sometimes called swirling, the swirl mm-hmm. world. And um, so we, we saw a couple of different platforms and places that were sort of dedicated for um, folks to kind of meet uh, and, and date interracially and almost bar none, almost bar none. Every one of them I thought devolved into some sort of really grotesque fetishization of black folk at some point. Like there was not all of them, but there was just like, you know, like cause there was a, a Google hangout space and we're you know, looking around and this one dude was like, wow, this guy is really almost like borderline creepy, you know, fetish is fetishizing, of of blackness and so in the dating circle you know i've never dated a black asian blah 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 don't 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 say things don't do things and if you have those sort of fetishist uh thoughts don't don't engage with people of color please there you go find your own find your own community and work that out on your own 
Uh, here's here's one for those of us that do a lot of speaking. Refuse to speak on an all white panel, regardless of the topic. Oh, that, now that's really you know how many CNN panels, you know, how many actual news panels I've seen. You can take it a step further, an all white or an all male panel if you're a woman, you know, or if it's you're a man. Tough- it's a tough thing because so, and that would require uh, conversations then about why you're not going to do it and and how you think that should you know how that could change how how can you engage this and and open this up right so it's complicated um, now if you're if you're part of that marginalized community this is for white people right so this is for people in the in the majority so uh, if so I think it's a little different in terms of an all male panel. If you're not a male, then then I would not that that's not when you don't ref, that's when not when you refuse to speak on it. But if you're a male and it's all males, that's where you look. Right. Oh, hey, we can't we got to expand that. So if you're white and everybody on the panel is uh, is white, say no. I'm sorry, I won't do that until we expand this. Uh, or and hand over your seat, and that's part of this. That's part of of. There, giving up our whiteness is going to require sacrifice, and it may require a sacrifice of us for jobs, for positions on things like panels, for notoriety. Right? That's that's part of what it is. Is we got we're going to be giving things up. We're going to be losing opportunities. Yeah, and I, and I've personally had some issues I had to struggle with with just that. Like you know, uh, you're not going to tear the master's house down using the master's tools, kind of thing. You know. It's a tough thing. Yeah. Uh, so there's more. Well, uh, the list is here. There's a hundred. This is actually really good. There was a Facebook group I was a part of years ago that was almost attempting to do a very basic like do's and don'ts in this regard. Mm-hmm. And it's embarrassing that that white people need to be told don't touch black people's hair and, you know, don't ask people where they're from and blah, 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 blah. But that that unfortunately is a, a, a reality still. It, um, oh, let me let me have this one because this one irks me. This is a personal one that gets personal stuff here. Don't refer to things as your spirit animal. If you're not native, mm. there are other ways to express affinity with something that one, that one gets me and gets me and gets me and gets me this whole thing around spirit animal or your totem, something that this is appropriation of native American communities and it gets glossed over. Don't do it. Find a different way to say that you're connected to it. Yeah. You know, I'm not saying that it's, it's totally analogous, but I feel like, the oppression of indigenous people it's been i'm not i don't know what the difference is because i'm not trying to make like a wheel of oppression but i'm just thinking of myself as a a young white man growing up like it was definitely like you you knew at a point you can't say that epithet you can't you know disparage black people a certain way you can't be in blackface but we dressed up as cowboy and indians forever we, you know what I mean? Like, even we though still we still have, we have sports teams that are still using yeah, those images and yeah. those names. Yeah. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. That that's so another, uh, yeah. Our, that's our, another as piece a, that a, I want to lift up here. As a white person in society, I, it is my impression that our willingness to appropriate indigenous culture is just limitless. We just, we have no compunction about taking indigenous things, using indigenous, whether it be headdresses, whether it be sacred, what dream catchers, using spirit animal, you name it. We have been uh, very comfortable uh, consuming indigenous uh, culture uh, inappropriately for a long, long, long time, forever. We can can talk about that in another episode, actually. I'd love to talk. Yeah. And that's even, you know, I'm I'm not, uh, again, I'm guilty of, my lens and discussion being narrowly framed as anti-black um, racism. And it's 
obviously because my wife is black and my I've got black family and that's kind of like what I know best. Um, but, but, uh, indigenous women, I, I believe are even more, uh, at risk. I think indigenous women are, uh, the, the pay is less than, than any other group. I think indigenous women, um, have more missing persons reports that have been unfiled. There's more, I, I don't know the actual statistics and data, but my limited understanding is that, that, um, indigenous women are even, even lower on the, you know, they're even more at risk when it comes to a lot of the state sanctioned violence and things that are happening. Yeah. And well, and I, I've been, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll get there. We're, we're going to get there. I'm, I'm, I'm heading that direction. That we'll be <laughs> being, uh, talking more about than about just anti-black. I mean, we brought it up before on this episode, uh, cause this white, white supremacy and white privilege is, is, you know, will blanketly oppress anybody that's not white and yeah. people that are white. <laughs> Mm. that don't fit into these pieces so we got what we will we'll, we'll start expanding it we'll we'll look at some other pieces because this definitely definitely uh definitely is reality yeah well again thank you rev for for giving me the time to unwind some of my my internal white nonsense uh appreciate it and i i just really appreciate that it's not always you know I think I come into these things thinking like, oh, this is just me being stupid and I'm being this, I'm being that. And it gives me a little bit of comfort that, that my concerns and thoughts aren't, uh, you know, random spurious or, uh, without, uh, basis kind of thing. Um, so I really appreciate that. And it, like I said, it, it, it wasn't my intent to spend an hour talking about my issues, but I really appreciate you being there and listening with me and doing this podcast and being willing to, um, evolve and, and see if there's something that we could to, to, to do more to bring people to action. I'm glad that you're here. I'm glad that you've invited me to be part of this and, and, uh, and you know, that we're struggling and I'm glad that we're struggling instead of, in, instead of just being complicit. Yeah. And I'm, I'm just going to, I'll put the post up in the link, but I really say who just preached such a word, you know, that comment that and he was speaking to a, church of white yous and i loved how he kept saying not you you use those other you use down the road this, this isn't right. you guys um but he said some of you have access and privilege to make marginalized people's lives better and he referenced you can call judges you can call lawyers you can do things so we some of us have access and privilege to make marginalized people's lives better will we fear god or serve the empire and that to me was just uh that that resonated deeply with me and um i fear god <laughs> and i don't want to serve the empire and, and i'm an atheist <laughs> i say i fear god i'm an atheist maybe it's less i fear god and more i just don't want to serve the empire well and th that's a bigger you know god can be a uh, I, could, I could spend a lot of time on this too about you know that that god in terms of metaphorical language right uh whether you're an atheist or agnostic around God itself, fearing uh, the future that we're, that we're paving, right? Mm. I don't want the future that we're paving to be what I fear that I'm being complicit and being part of the future heading this direction. Or am I going to serve the empire, right? There's other ways to, to look at, at God. If, if the, if thinking about God as a deity is not yours, you don't have to leave this concept behind. We can find other ways. We can we can struggle with finding other ways of looking at what that is. It's powerful language, and it even you know it, it, that's why it's powerful language. It speaks to you, even though it's not it's not your language. Mm. 
Yeah, it's a really good point. I always, and I'm not we're getting more theologically, but uh, I can. I always say I'm an atheist, but then I talk to someone like uh, my friend Dr. Key, and she's like, "Well, but I don't believe in a God that you know this type of God, that type of God. Is that the type of well? Then I'm an atheist too. Like you know the the conventional uh, Christian view of God and sort of this. Uh, ah, we're going. Let's stop it now. I'm Listen, going way if you're too far. At that, I'm telling you, just read James Cone. Just read James Cone. <laughs> And I, I admittedly have not. I, I understand and, and know his position as sort of the the forefather of of um, black liberation theology, and we'll definitely have to take a look, uh, as you said, and especially since uh, his passing is uh, recent, was a is a uh, a big loss for the black liberation uh, community. Okay, uh, we'll go ahead and wind it down again. Mike, my tenth. Sorry, uh, you can rate it negative zero if you want. Um, but thank you, Rev. Thank you for listening. Um, we're going to keep doing this. We're committed to um, to to not serving the empire and hopefully um, not being complacent. And hopefully we're not just uh, allowing people to feel good about themselves, but um, to take some of this and and make difference uh, in their uh, where they can for marginalized people. Uh, so this is our sign off uh, framed by Feminista Jones. Help don't hinder. Support don't supplant. Cooperate don't co-opt. Solidarity, not charity. One person can make a difference. Your passion is a superpower. Until next time, and hopefully it will be sooner um, than we've left you this last time. Uh, but again, Ref, thank you so much, and thank you for listening. Take care, everybody. Cheers. Bye-bye.